0: Amen. Hey, this morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as you're tapping and turning your way there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 14 through 22. Paul has uh, a word to us that if you look at what we talked about last week, that effectively we can't rest on our laurels, we can't allow our past experiences of God to, to be enough to sustain ongoing relationship with God, then he picks up as kind of an application point from that a word on idolatry. Do you remember that ad campaign in the 1980s that you take this really scrawny kid and then all of a sudden he'd drink a glass of milk and he'd just be kind of muscle-bound and the, the takeaway was milk does a body good. And then all the various things that we've heard growing up, that uh, you are what you eat, which if that's the case, then there was an extended period of my life, I was little more than biscuits and gravy and hamburgers. And there are times in my life that my kids are a little bit more than goldfish and microwave mac and cheese. And so, so we recognize that, that these things fall apart, right? That we aren't actually what we eat. But the scenario there in Corinth, we began to see that the activities they were engaged in as represented by where they were eating and how they were doing these things revealed their associations. So Paul gives us this helpful corrective. He says we need to be mindful to flee idolatry because our mindless engagement and tacit endorsements reveal our identity. Let me say that again. We must be mindful to flee idolatry because our mindless engagement, so the things we do without paying attention and our tacit endorsements, the thing we give uh, endorsements of, the things we validate by virtue of our actions they reveal our identities, and they're revealing their identities. And so that's what we're going to see as we walk through this, that our associations reveal our identity. So Paul begins in verse 14, and he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. And so Paul writes, he says, look, you're sensible people. Judge for yourself what I say. In essence, you have the rational capacity to understand what I'm saying, and to move to apply it. And so his command is to flee idolatry. And so we get the understanding. And I just want you to sense the urgency of this behavior, that fleeing isn't casual abandonment of. Fleeing isn't saying, okay, well, well, here's something dangerous, and here's something deadly, and let me get as close to it as I can so that I might inspect it, and once I inspect it, once I validate the direction of fleeing, and I know that it's something that could actually harm my life, perhaps then I'll set up an extended study, and I'll camp out here, and then maybe at the end of that extended study, I'll take a step back. That's That's, that's insanity. That's insanity. When we draw close and perceive something to be an idol in our lives, or it has the propensity, the likelihood of becoming an idol in our lives, this is what he calls us to. Reckless abandon, getting the heck out of there. Moving away from this at a breakneck pace and staying away from it. Idol and fleeing idols isn't like this. Oh, look at this. Apple juice is clearly an idol in my life. I just need to step back and gain some perspective and then step back in and re-engage my idol. What he tells us and what he's indicating to us is that those things that are idols in your life have no place in your life. That we enter into reckless engagement with them and they will absolutely lord authority over your life. So the only engagement, the only relationship a Christian can have... Rightly according to his word, with an idol is to abandon it and to run away. To clear teaching, and many of us end up with our lives perpetually in the ditch, trying to cozy back up to the idols that we created and that we found. And we're going to hit some of these at the end. And so you just wait. Now Paul's going to give us something that was more applicable and 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 more readily understood to those in first those in Corinth that he writes to here in 1 Corinthians, which is just kind of idol worship. And so in the city of Corinth, there would be temples and there would be idols to any number of gods, and so Neptune, Jupiter, and you could go in to the temple and you could celebrate a meal and you could offer a sacrifice to that God by virtue of of celebrating a meal with that idol in your presence. No, we don't have that, right? We don't see all these various temples set up and established all over Greenville, although we're gonna get to some contemporary idols later. But what we found is that the Christians there in Corinth would find themselves going with their neighbor. And so, and so uh, their neighbor would come along and say, Hey, look, I'm going to go offer a sacrifice to Jupiter. Would you come with me? And he said, Oh, you don't want to be a good neighbor. What are you sacrificing? We're sacrificing filet mignon. Oh, I love filet mignon. That would be delightful. And so they go in and they sit down and they say, Oh, Jupiter's nothing. It's okay. Where's my filet mignon? And so Paul says, Well, this is creating a real problem. You're, 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 you, you fail to understand that the implication of your association because your association with this idol is revealing your true identity. So Paul wants them to understand it in terms of broader meals, and so he's going to separate it. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to talk about communion, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, and then he's going to move in and he's going to talk about pagan meals, okay? So let's look at the first of the two components. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? So he's building his argument. So in Matthew 26, uh, Jesus is gathered with the disciples, and he's in this kind of upper room discourse, and he begins to talk about the Lord's Supper, and he begins to talk about his blood and his body. And so he asked them a couple of different questions, and I just want to hit this as a refresher. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, uh, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so he's beginning to talk about the Lord's Supper, in some sense, the communion, Paul does. So he says, The cup of blessing that we bless... So in essence, he, he figures this, this chalice, this cup, filled with the blood of Christ. And he says, we bless. And so he's not talking about saying, God, would you bless this? Would you make this holy? Would you make this reverent? Would you make this effective in my life? But in essence, what he's saying is, God, we praise you for giving us this. We bring you honor and glory for giving us this. Do you see the difference? One is asking God to fundamentally change the substance. The other is turning in and recognizing the good thing that God has given and blessing and praising him on the basis of his gift. So this is how he figures them, the cup of blessing that we bless. And so we praise God on the basis of having given us this cup. He says, is it not participation? Or you might otherwise render and translate this word fellowship. So when we take of the cup, is this not fellowship with the blood of Christ? So Christian, when we take the Lord's Supper, and we do this the the last Sunday of every other month, here's a local body, when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what does his blood, what does his death signify? What does it mean? Does it mean just some watered-down Welch's grape juice for us? Does it mean wine? Does it mean a mess? Does it mean little plastic cups? No, what it means is his blood that was poured out. And so it's painting this beautiful picture that you and I have rebelled against a holy and righteous God, that we have sinned against this God. And on the basis of our sin, you and I, all of us, are due the penalty and the punishment of that, which is right retribution, the justice of God poured out on us. But right at the moment it was about to hit us, catch us, Jesus stood in and he took the wrath of God. He stood in between us, and the Bible uses this word as propitiation, the wrath of God poured out on the Son to safe keep you and I who believe in the effective death of Jesus. And so he says, when we drink of this cup, we have fellowship with his blood. We are identifying ourselves with Jesus through the visible taking of the Lord's Supper. And that's why we take it as a body of local believers. So he says, "And the bread that we break... Is that not participation in the body of Christ? And so Jesus stood there and he, he broke the unleavened bread and he gave it. And he says, this is my body. This is my body which is given to you. And so when we break that bread together, when we take of this supper together, it has a, uh, this kind of identifying force where we are representing locally what is true universally. We're representing locally what's true universally. Look what he says in verse 17. He said, because there is one bread, because there is one bread, we who are many, we are universal. Every Christian that has ever lived anywhere at all times, we are many. This isn't Baptists. This isn't Anglicans. This isn't Catholics. It's saying all those identified with Jesus in all times, forever and ever, into infinity, We who are many are one. Do you see the fundamental error when we begin to think that we are disparate and spread out? We who are many are one. Where do we find our unity? Not in our ability to overlook differences. We find our unity in him. Jesus has this amazing unifying force and why can he have that? For we all partake of the one bread. Colossians 1:18 tells us that Jesus Christ is the head of the body. And then it tells us that the body is the church. And so if Jesus is, is the head of the body, he himself the head of the church, then what does that say about us in our failure to engage the church, to have reverence for his bride? It calls all of us to set aside our differences and all the various ways that I would articulate and, and, and have a varied expression than you of church that I would dig in. The universal church is only ever displayed locally. And this is why local church membership is important. This is why local church involvement is important. Because you, you can't exist as a member of this nebulous group. You can only manifest and display God's goodness through the local church. He calls every Christian to local church identification. This is what he says. Although we are many, we are one. And we display that in the local church. So he's going to move and He wants to make this transition. He wants them to understand this isn't just a principle for you there in Corinth today. And so he goes historical on them. He says, consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar? So he says, oh, think back to when Israel was there, and, and, and God was moving in them, and he's moving in them through the Exodus, and that's what he's just talked about in, in 10, 1 through 13. He said, and you've got the priests, and they're offering the sacrifice, and they're eating certain elements of it, and you have the people, and they're receiving that. Their identification in eating of that meal together is identifying them with God. As they join at the altar, they are identifying with God. Their participation and their association is revealing their identity. So you can imagine those there in Corinth and they're saying, Okay, look, we get this. And we know Paul is getting ready to address some, some, some just wild patterns of behavior there that they're engaging with in the Lord's Supper. We get this. We take the Lord's Supper. We understand what you're going. Ah, look, well, we know what you're doing here. But why are you bringing all of this up now what do you What do you mean to say to us on the basis of these things? He says, what do I imply then that the food offered to idols is anything or that a that an idol is anything in essence just because uh just because that I'm talking about this, are, are you meaning to suggest that I think that things are empty? Now, remember, Paul has already spoken in 1 Corinthians eight four on idols, and he said, "Therefore, is the eating of food offered to idols? We know that an idol has no real existence, for there is no God but one." So, those there in Corinth had received this definitive word from Paul. He said, "Look, your neighbors are out and they're making idols, but you need to understand that that idol has no real value." It is empty, it is void, it is meaningless. So he said, okay. So then I can do anything I want, and I can engage in any way I want. He said, well, no, that's that's not quite exactly what I mean. Just because it is empty doesn't mean that it is harmless. Just because there is nothing there doesn't mean that it is innocent. So he's going to provide this difficult teaching that would be very difficult for them. It will be hard for them to apply in their culture because no one understood this and they were a significant minority there in, cor- in, uh, in Corinth. He says, no, I imply that what, s- what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God, and I don't want you to be participants with demons. Well, this is something radically different than that he's talking about. You see, they've been living their lives as if their engagement with these empty, meaningless objects had no greater ramifications on them and on their lives. But Paul wants them to understand that when your neighbor goes in, when the person in your community goes in, and they say, I want to offer this as a sacrifice to Apollo or Jupiter or whoever, they believe that there is some greater being there. And this greater being that they do not know that they do not mean to engage in, in actuality, is a demonic influence. So you look at this and say, whoa, you know, this is more than I signed up for today. Can we talk about something, you know, like life improvement or whatnot? But what we recognize is that the Bible freely speaks of angels and demons and God. And, and, And it's not... To be fanciful, it's not so that we can introduce some type of science fiction timeline into the Bible. It's just this clear representation. that The Bible gives us this this non-exciting account, this tragic account actually, that fully a third of the angels fell. That when Satan rebelled against God, that he led fully a third of the angels with him and that they exist even today as demons. And this is how the Bible refers to the fallen angels. And their primary goal and purpose isn't to come and indwell you and lead to some type of exodus, exodus or, uh, exorcism series that could spin off, but their primary engagement is to lead you to believe that they don't exist and to lead you to ruin your life by worshiping things that don't deserve your worship. This is what they were doing in Corinth, and this is what they do today. So Paul writes to this group, he says, you need to understand that when you go there and you engage and you, you give your mindless engagement and your tacit endorsement, you're worshiping a demon. Well, this really struck a chord with them. Because now they have to ask themselves the question of, what does this say about my greater affinity, my greater belonging to Christ? Paul says you can't uh, be a participant with the Lord and be a participant with demons. Verse 21, he says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. We can't have fellowship with demons and with Jesus. He says you can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And so you look at this and say, oh, you know, It's not such a big deal. I live in the 21st century. We don't have uh, temples in Greenville, Texas to Jupiter. They may have something like that over in Dallas, but you know I'm quite safe here. And it's, it's just really not that big of a deal. But this is the insidious nature of idols. Idols are happy and at home in your heart, and your heart is an idol factory. It is. (laughs) And the the, the deceptive nature of our enemy is to take good things and bend them to be ultimate things, which makes them bad things that that militate against our God. So I spent some time this week just thinking about what are idols that are systemic in our culture, in our society, and within our church. And, And the great difficulty of this is, is a couple of things. One, uh, I'm going to step on some of your toes, but I'm going to step on them not nearly as hard as you need them to be stomped on. And others of you are going to come off scot-free, and you're going to be led to the insane notion that you have no idol in your life. And I'm sorry that I can't offend everybody. <laughs> I, I just really am. And I, I mean that slightly tongue-in-cheek but I desperately want us to be a people who are acutely aware of the idols in our lives. As I begin to pray over this passage, and I knew it was coming up, and begin to ask God to reveal the idols in my life, he gave me the most gloriously terrible week. That just was this this, this progression of, oh, Matt doesn't think this is an idol. This is great. Bring me the hammer! (laughs) And he just beat the tarnation out of my idol. And then I stood there looking at it, bloodied and bruised and thinking, I didn't know this was in there. And he says, let's move to the next one. That was Monday. I <laughs> said, so Tuesday, I feebly crawl into the office and I set up there this, this idol that I bandied back together. And he beat it again. Oh, I just said, Wednesday's awful at a Baptist church. What can I get? i going to be idol free on Wednesday. And he said, no, you've got to be ready for Sunday. So just over and over again, God revealed my idol. And I would tell you this, that if your prayer is to be closer to him and you recognize idols as an impediment to that, he will be faithful to show you your idols. But the eradication of an idol in your heart is a miserable procedure because most of the idols have made their ways into our hearts quietly, unassumingly, as we've allowed good things to become ultimate things, and everybody in our circle validates them. Everybody in your circle validates them, and that's how you know it's such a devastating idol if when you share it with the people around you, they begin to say, no, that's a good thing. Religion and church can be idols. Control can be an idol. Respect can be an Idol. We don't have time to go through all of them, sadly. But I want to hit four. Or rather, I want to hit three, and one is kind of a corollary. When you begin to think of idols that make their way into our lives, money has to jump out there as one of the foremost idols, and a whole series of things kind of flow from our idol of money. If you don't think money... Is, is important. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service about how you can greatly enrich my life. <laughs> but money isn't this thing that we have to be taught. There's no tutorial given to us to help us assign value to money. Even from the time we were children, we grew up recognizing that people who have money's lives are vastly different than our own. They live in nicer homes, they drive nicer cars, they wear nicer clothes, their vacations are better in the restaurants they eat at, or even if they eat in restaurants. And so we begin to recognize that money sets up class distinction. It sets up a standard of living. And so invariably, some of us begin to create money as an idol in our lives. We want more of it so that we can elevate our standard of living. And so we work longer and longer hours to attain to greater and greater levels of money. And all the while, we are fooling ourselves, some of us, into believing, oh, money is a tool. Friends, money is using you as a tool to pursue something else. It quit being a useful tool for you a long time ago, and now you're the one being used. And and our hearts move from, all the, the meritorious things and the wonderful things we're going to do when we have X amount of dollars. When I have this level of money, then I'm going to be generous. You're lying to yourself. That, that, that level will continue to increase and will continue to grow. Very uh, few of us will ever abide by that level that we want to hit. Repeatedly, I have my dad tell me that men that work for him that made deep into the six figures would routinely ask for advances in pay. There's never a level that we hit that we would say, this is enough. We have to establish that level now. And it's well below where many of us are currently living. Money wants to rule and reign in your heart. And so we're faced with the idea of being greedy or being generous. Let us be generous to the point of a fault and abandon greed because money wants to rule and reign as an idol in your life. One of the difficult things in any community is to get people to recognize that their families are idols. And you can just irritate the son out of people when you tell them this. Because we begin to ask these questions, we begin to kind of sanctify our engagement of, are you saying I shouldn't leave my family well? No, nobody's saying that. Are you saying that, that my family's not important? Nobody's saying that. But what I am telling you is your family isn't nearly as important as you've made it. Most of us don't suffer from familial neglect. Now, some of you do, and and that's an error that we need to correct in a whole separate conversation. But what we have sanctified and made true for us over and over and over again, you can look at the books on how to lead families, and you can look at the importance and how we think that every single person is destined for a family. We have made family the ultimate goal, and it's not. And when you set family as an idol in your life, this is what you do. You say, family's up here and the kingdom of God is ancillary. The kingdom of God is over here and I don't want it to invade my family because if it did, it could take my children. It could lead them in a course and a direction of life that I'm not comfortable with because it begins to violates my hopes and dreams for them that their family would be better than mine. Family our free time with our family, our vacation and experiences with our family, our family time, our hopes and dreams for our kids. Do I want my children to grow up to be martyrs for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I can't tell you I woke up this morning praying that. Most of us, what we want for our kids is something better than what our lives have been. We don't see that in the Bible. We just don't. What we should want for our families is that us and our spouses and our children and our cousins and our family of God here in this church, that we would all be faithful to Jesus. That whatever he calls us to, we would be willing to go. That if he says, look, I want you to uproot and I want you to move to Zaire. I want you to uproot. I want you to move to the DR. Look, I want you to uproot and I want you to move to a country that you don't know its name and you don't know its language and you don't know its people, but I do and they need the gospel. But as long as family's an idol, we're never going to go. And as long as family's an idol, we're never going to lead our kids to go. And as long as family's an idol, we're always going to limit our effectiveness in the gospel. Family cannot be an idol. But it so desperately wants to be. And our churches and our people and our programming invariably moves us to the temptation of letting it be. Let us not let family be an idol. Safety is kind of one that comes off of that. Because we so desperately value safety and the preservation of our own lives. There are limits we place on our willingness to go and our willingness to be sacrificed Because somehow I think that the preservation of my life is the highest good and highest value. If you would be faithful and just allow God to be in charge of your safety, this is the only way we can live. Now, hear me clearly. What I'm not saying is that the safest place for you is in the middle of God's will. That is, of course, unless what you believe is that you could be dead and in heaven. And that is the, the safest place, statistically, that you can be, is dead and in heaven. Uh, Robert Jeffers, never mind, I don't want to go there. <laughs> but God has your best interest in mind. And for some of that, some of us, that is the surrender of our lives. But as long as you pursue safety and build hedges and walls... You're never going to be able to be fully used by God because you're setting something that is opposed to God ruling and reigning in your life as a, a restriction over the free movement of His Spirit. I want to end with the idea of individualism. Individualism as, uh, as an idol. Notice I've skipped over politics. I just beat the snot out of you for many weeks over that one. And so nobody wants to have that conversation anymore. But it's still an issue. But individualism asks the question of what brings me the most satisfaction? What brings me the most satisfaction? And then living a life to see that satisfaction visited and realized. Many of us, this is how we live our lives and we don't do it out of an intense desire to be selfish. We just do it because we've never been one told that it's wrong. Perhaps we don't care enough for the people around us. But most of us just kind of stumble into this idea that it's good for me to pursue something that brings me pleasure. It's good for me to pursue something that that I would delight in, be it a job or be it something else. But a better thing to pursue. It's God, what would bring you pleasure? God, what would cause you to delight in my life? And do you see how those are radically opposed to one another? On the one hand, it sees me fulfilling all of my whims and desires. On the other hand, it sees me surrendering everything in my life to him. This is what he calls us to. I can tell you, this is not next-level Christianity. This is boring, rudimentary, normal Christianity. The normal Christianity of the Bible is living a life of full sacrifice to Jesus. That is not exceptional, that is normal. But we have made it exceptional by lowering the bar of what it is to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to occasionally think of going to church, to occasionally be charitable, and to be a person who people generally think is okay and that is being a Christian. The Bible doesn't understand Christianity within those confines. It doesn't understand Christianity within those descriptions. To be a Christian is to be fully aligned and identify with Jesus such that there is no part, no area of your life that is off limits to him. And so we don't get to ask the question of what brings me the most satisfaction because we are living a life to bring him the most joy, the most honor, and the most glory is difficult. Because we are individualists, we have a decided lack of commitment. We are committed primarily to ourselves, to our family, to our safety, and to our possessions. Being an individualist will ruin a vibrant expression of Christianity, but it will be perfectly at home in the 21st century. You can be mistaken for a Christian full of zeal and passion and be a terrible individualist. And as the Bible accounts it, a terrible Christian. Because you want to be a Christian on your own terms. I want to go to church whenever I want to. I want to join this church or that church. I want to sing. I want to do this. Your walk and experience of Jesus is only for you. Why? Because you're an individualist. The vast majority of command in the New Testament and the understanding of the Old Testament is a community of believers, a group of people bonded together. In the New Testament, we get the picture that it's the Holy Spirit which is keeping us tight, keeping us committed, keeping us together. And that my expression of Christianity is not my own adventure. It's not a pick and choose. It's not a whatever makes Matt happiest. It is lived out within the vibrant community of other followers and believers of Jesus. We have to put to death individual expressions of Christianity. We've got to. Can I tell you this? That if we would be a people, if we would be a church, and we would lead all the various spheres of influence of life that God gives us to, to systematically disabusing ourselves of the notion, one, that we live idol-free, and then finding those idols and asking God to eradicate them from our hearts, we could stand a chance of fundamentally changing our community. Not making it a better place to live, but making it a place that is, is fundamentally affected by the movement of the Spirit of God. Because as we set Him free in our lives, so too He sets us loose on our community. But we're never going to get there as long as we don't flee idols. And many of us are too comfortable. So I want to leave you with these encouraging and challenging words from the Apostle Paul. Paul gives us this beautiful picture in Philippians 3. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to pray together. Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 7. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So he said, whatever goodness, whatever graciousness, whatever accolade was coming my way, I looked at it, and I said, this thing is a detriment. This thing is a liability for the sake of Jesus. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. everything is loss. I think of my family. I think of my authority. I think of my control. I think of my reputation. I think of my political stance. I think of what other people think of me. I think of safety. I think of security. I think of money. And all of these things I count as loss. It says, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul looked at all the various things in his life that someone would look at and say, "That is amazing. That is valuable. Everybody in society wants that." It's not just that he counted it as loss for the surpassing gain of gaining Christ, but he counted it as less than nothing—less than nothing. Prayer for us is that the idols in our life would be counted as less than nothing for the surpassing worth of gaining Christ so that we might be useful and used by him to make an eternal impact on the lives of those that he puts across our path. Let me pray for us. Father God, I don't know what idols the men and women of this room have, but you do. It's their family, it's bitterness, it's disappointment, something intrinsic to their identity, to who they are and their personality. God, I pray that your love would show it to them would help them to remove it from their lives so that they might honor and glorify you with their lives. Help us not to worship the idols of this world. Help us not to worship the idols of contemporary Christianity, but help us to worship you and you alone, for you are worthy of all praise, for you are worthy of all honor and all glory. Father, I pray that you would move in the hearts today of those who do not know you, who have never surrendered their lives to you. That they would see in your son Jesus an opportunity to be forgiven their sins. To be redeemed and restored. So God, I pray that you would move in their hearts for belief, for conviction of sin, that they would turn from their sin and towards Jesus confessing Him as Savior and Lord. Father God, we submit these things to you in His name. Amen. Amen.